This episode of Bulldogs, our podcast, is brought to you by Bulldogs NFT. We are three dumb digs aiming to make a huge difference in the Web3 space. For more information regarding our Bulldogs NFT project, head to our socials, Bulldogs underscore NFT on both Instagram and Twitter, and our website, www.bulldogsnftrange.com. The Wardogs Hour podcast aims to inspire people by sharing real-life experiences and what possibilities we have at our fingertips using our connections, skills and disciplines learned from our time in the military. Let's spin some mad worries and have a laugh. Hi, boys. I have a question for the men. What the fuck do you want? What is it? I can't figure it our guest today served for six years as a warfare and a logistics officer in the Royal Australian Navy. While serving, Lachlan deployed a number of times before eventually leaving the service in 2020. Since then, he's been a very busy man. He has started his own business, Atlas Property Group, become an author of an Amazon best-selling book, A Military Guide to Property Investing. He's a two-time finalist in the 2022 REB Awards and most recently he's become a lecturer at UNSW Business School. Lachlan Vidler, welcome to the War Dogs Hour. Uh, thanks for having me, boys. Mate, first of all, congratulations on all your achievements and success, but let's wind things back a little bit. What made you join the Navy? It's a good question. And I find when I when I do have a chat with people, whether it's clients, whether it's um, you know podcasts, whatever it is, I get the question a lot. And I still, honestly, to this day, don't really know. I think leaving school, um, I wanted to get out of home. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to do something fun and exciting. Um, I had a bit of military service in my family, so my my dad was in the navy for a bit. My uh, grandfather on his side was in uh, World War Two. My great-grandfather on my mum's side was in World War II. So we've got a bit of family history there going back. I think I think my grandma does it and she, and she can say that we go back to the Boer War. So, um, yeah, we've got a bit of background there. But I think for me it was really about just getting out, doing something, um, being able to see the world, get some good training, get some good experiences. Um, and I think that I knew I'd never stay forever, but I knew it was a great way to sort of start out my working life. So what? Um, how old were you when you first joined? 18, straight out of school. Straight out of the block. Straight off the block. Straight in. Yeah, yeah. straight off the block. Did you, um, <laughs> how did you find it joining as a young fellow? Was it um, a bit scary at first or did you think, oh, I got this? Um, I was definitely a bit, you know, nervous. Like, I still remember to this day, uh, burned in my memory, uh, you know, getting a bus from Sydney down to Jarvis Bay to uh, HMS Creswell, walking into my, my cabin for the first time, looking pristine, some folders on the desk of all the material we were going to cover. So we're starting to flick through it a bit and then just sort of going, oh, shit, what am I in for here? Yeah. <laughs> and how long but, is um, your officer training? Uh, so Creswell for Navy officers is 20 weeks and that's just sort of like uh, how to, you know, exist in the Navy, how to be an officer in general. There's no job-specific stuff. So that's why it's a bit shorter. Um you know, work on me. I think we could probably do it a bit longer. I mean, you look at RMC, that's that's 18 months. Probably doesn't need to be that long. Um, I think we're the same as Air Force, um, Air Force officers. Um, but, yeah, I, look, I think it could probably go a bit longer. But, yeah, we do a lot more on-the-job stuff um, or job-specific training afterwards. 
Yeah, and do, do you want to talk us through that? What exactly is a warfare <coughs> and logistics officer? Yeah, so uh, a maritime warfare officer is, uh, I guess, a ship driver. That's the old term for it. Um, so they're, they're basically captain's representative. Career path is, um, is you start out um, being an officer of the watch, so leading a deck team, and then you, you progress through to, cap- to being a captain. Um, I, I did that for a little while, um, but then I, I wanted to sort of go in a bit of a different direction. I sort of knew that I wanted to set myself up for a bit of a better time on the outside, or at least what I wanted to do. Um, and then that was why I decided to change to logistics uh, because – you know, it's a, there's not many ships to get driven down down uh, George Street in Sydney, but you know, logistics could set you up a little bit better. So that was why I wanted to do that. And I, I had a business degree, and um, I was pretty interested in business, so I, I changed to do that. And then, obviously, a logistics officer handles the logistics on a ship. So um, there's you know only ever a couple of them on board, and they handle you know everything from port visits to resupplies to you know who's getting what for dinner each day. So um, pretty varied role there. Yeah, awesome. And uh, deployment. So you deployed a few times. Um, what parts of the world did you get to? So I guess probably like a lot of Navy people, uh, unlike the unlike a few Army boys, um, it's a bit hard for us to get to the other side of the world. Um, so I did a lot of, I guess, regional stuff. So um, I did uh, one called Operation Render Safe. So that's um, like uh, UXO uh, disposal, uh, bomb disposal stuff. Um, so we went to an island called Bougainville. Um, it's an autonomous region of Papua New Guinea. Um, and there's just lots of old remnants of war from World War II there. Um, so we went there for, I think, three or four weeks um, and it supported, uh, you know, uh, clearance divers, uh, army bomb disposal, air force bomb disposal, um, uh, and, and did that. Uh, I did uh, uh, border protection, um, like a lot of Navy people. <laughs> so that was just up north, out of Darwin, um, uh, you know, just, just doing patrols, um, yeah, out of Darwin on the patrol boats. And uh, and then I also, um, you know, just did stuff around the near region, so Southeast Asia um, and then, you know, throughout the Pacific Islands, things like that. I know a lot of the boys from Fiverr had to get on that boat, that border patrol boat. I'd be waiting for them to come back and you'd say, like, I'm never going back out to sea again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, this was horrible. And I'm pretty sure there was a cyclone that blew in too. So was it Sea State, I think it is, when it gets real hectic? So they're like, mate, we're never going back out on that bloody boat again. They reckon it's, yeah. it's just a tin can, like a death trap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it gets a bit like that, and and depending on where you go, it can it can blow a bit of a gale, and then yeah, oh. sea state just refers to how big the swell is, and um and yeah, it, it can it can get a bit hairy. It's um it was always funny whenever army boys would come on board, you'd see everyone would be hanging their heads over the side for the oh, first yeah. day or two. <laughs> We'd be the, we're land mammals, mate. So although <laughs> some of us are airborne, but mate, they can have that. But yeah, land mammals only. Oh, I oh, mean, if it gets anything <laughs> above a meter, I'm out. I'm so sick. Can't handle it. And and it scares the living shit out of me. You got nowhere to go. So if the boat goes down, where are you going? Like, oh mate, yeah, your 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 stuff. You're gone. And and why would you (laughs) want to be on there if a torpedo comes flying into the boat as well? Yeah, where are you going? Oh mate, I just I never understood it. But anyway, (laughs) scary boats scare me. Just shark food, mate. Yeah, yeah. You just turn into bait. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So have you got any highlights from your time in? Oh, I mean, I think, I think, and I don't know if you boys are the same, but like the 1% stuff, the stuff that's burned into your memory, like they were the best times ever. And yep. you look back and, and, and I mean, I've now been out for sort of two, 
two, three years now. And that's the stuff I remember. Uh, but then obviously there's like the 99% day-to-day stuff where you're like, oh, fuck, this is shit. Yeah, <laughs> what am yeah, I even doing here? Yeah, just but, boring and yeah, yeah. non-tech. Yeah. I love non-teching. Hey, that was my most favorite yeah. thing to do, mate. Non-tech, the same thing every week for 52 yeah. weeks a year. That was so, man, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. For me, it was just it was just getting out and about, you know, like pulling in, you know, pulling in Singapore, right? Going for a, going for a route right on the town of Sing- in Singapore or, um, you know, just getting out and about, uh, get, been on there with good mates, you know, just been in the shit situations. Everyone's looking at each other. Everyone wants to punch a wall and we're like, fuck, we just got to get through this. And then you get to the other side and you're like, yeah, unreal. Yeah. yeah I'd hard. imagine on some of those smaller uh, ships, they could be, you could get a bit cabin feverish as well. Like, is it hard to yeah. um, keep friendly with everyone if you've been at sea for a while? <laughs> well, what you, what you, it is, but what you find is that on the smaller, on the smaller ships slash boats, like say a patrol boat versus a frigate or one of the LHDs is, it's a lot more casual on there, but it kind of has to be, right? Like on a on one of the majors, um, you know, the captain's the captain. Captain often will stay in their cabin very frequently. You know, they don't dine with um, the, uh, even the officers because obviously officers and sailors are separated in their messing arrangements. Um, the captain won't even eat with the officers. It's very much, you know, quite formal a lot of the time. Um, but patrol boats, way more casual, you know, like it's small boat, there's like 20 people on there. Um, there's often only say three officers versus you know fifteen to twenty sailors. So at least from the officer side, you know we we have to become a lot more tight knit. But even the sailors, you know, it, it wasn't uncommon that um, you know you'd have nicknames or you might occasionally get called by your first name or things like that. But that obviously just wouldn't happen on a big ship. Yeah, yeah, a lot more regimented and. Yeah. Well, you'd have to be, wouldn't you? It's the same as the battalion. You know, you've got your tight-knit group. I mean, we our officer in mortars was, you know, he was like one of the boys. But, you know, when you start stepping up, um, yeah, they get a bit more um, strict in how you talk to them. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it, I think it's good. I think it's good because, you know, at the end of the day, right, like, and, and I guess I bring that um, officer perspective to it because I wasn't a sailor per se. Um, you know, the sailors, the diggers, you know, whatever terms you want to call it, you know, those are the guys that were doing the work, you know, the big work, you know, we would think and we would, you know, be the ones taking on the risk per se, but, you know, the the enlisted would be the guys doing the work. And I think that when, you, when you're when you working on those tight teams, you've got to be a little bit more casual. You've got to have that respect for each other of like, you know, whatever it is that's going on. I don't know. I can't even put an example. You know what I mean? Like, yep. you know, you've got to have that sort of comfort level with each other and that trust. Yeah, yeah 100%. Did, did you have a preference? In terms of like big ships or small ships, yeah. Oh, I guess both. Uh, to be honest, I probably preferred big ships slightly, just because they would do more things, and you could do you go more places, do more things. It was a bit more exciting. But the casual atmosphere of the small boats, I definitely liked a bit more. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, and as you mentioned, you you've only been out for two years, and uh, like we said in the in the intro. Um, you've, you've got a fair bit done. So transition is usually the hardest uh, bit for, for vets um, and you've made yours seem fairly seamless. So, but personally, how did you find the process? Um, I guess personally, I actually did find it quite easy um, and part of that was that when I first left, I, I was in Canberra uh, and then I went into a consulting role and a lot of that was back to military. So I was consulting to army. So 
you know, I'd left, but I was still involved. And I think that that probably helped a little bit. It wasn't as much of a, you know, my entire life was turned upside down. I was going to do something entirely different. Um, but I think as well, you know, like I left with a degree. I left with half a master's. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that my background, my skills, my qualifications fit that. So I was able to sort of fit the, you know, the square peg hole that little bit better, you know, like I was maybe, maybe I was an octagon, but I wasn't a full triangle kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think it's one of those things that it's just, it, it, I was lucky and I know that I was lucky and I've got mates who have now left and I, and I was working with people when I left that had also transitioned out that really struggled. And I think that I was probably one of the luckier ones on that side. I think preparation's the key. So you obviously prepared for your uh, exit from the military. Is a, a big lesson in this for all those that are um, wanting to transition out. Um, probably the best lesson is not to knee jerk and go, you know, like a lot of us did. Um, yeah, I'm putting my DN, I'm over this, see you later. Get me out. I want to fast track this. But realistically, you need to be planning that for sort of, you know, a year to 18 months so you can get some kind of um, qualification under your belt, maybe a diploma, I'm not sure, but actually plan it out so you're not just leaving and then you're on your ass and you're like, uh-oh, I'm going to have to sign the line again. Uh, I've got no money, here it comes. <laughs> yeah, oh, I totally agree. And I think it's it's one of those things, I think you've got to, if you can know what you're going to go into, right, if you're going to go be a chippy, know what the pathway is to be a chippy. If you're going to go be an accountant, know what the pathway is to be an accountant, right, and either – start to tick those things off or uh, don't, but, you know, know what you're doing, know what the steps you've got to do so that you don't run out and you're like, oh, holy shit, like, what, what am I meant to do now, you know? Yeah, because there is those springboards so you can study uh, while you're serving. Um, yeah. yeah. But, like, yeah. It, it, it took me a long time. <clears throat> we served together, the two of us, and um, I've mm. been out for about 10 years and finally circling back and doing something together um, – think um, has been really good for us because you know and understand each other more. It's not like you're walking into a civilian job and, like, people work just a little bit differently. Um, mm-hmm. That's why you see, I think, a lot of vets going out and working for themselves as well because they know they can rely on themselves. I'd agree, 100%. Um, I think we, do, we, we all, you know, whether you're Army, Navy or Air Force, whether you are... Uh, soldier say airman or an officer we all have i reckon a 70 to 80 percent commonality in the way that we think the way that we look at decision making the way that we talk the way that we you know conduct our actions things like that and i think you're right it just makes it really easy and seamless to do things together because you just kind of get it and you can quickly pick up like um when i interview people to say work for me or, or work for me in other jobs and they might have had a military background it was pretty easy for me to quickly tell whether they were a good performer, whether they were, you know, one of the shit ones that, you know, you probably won't want working with you anyway. Um, and it all came, I think, from that commonality. So I totally agree. I think I think it, it's a big reason why, yeah, a lot of vets end up working together or doing things with their mates or stuff like that. Yeah, and it's just that reliability and work ethic. Um, yeah, it's the work ethic. No one's ever going to match your standard, which, why, which is why we become um, <laughs> good businessmen because um, – I mean, I found personally that, you know, all my civvy mates don't have any sense of urgency. Like, I try to get things done as quick as possible. And then my civvy mates, like, 
for example, God bless him, my roommate, like just to even get to the gym in the morning, it's like a 45-minute process, whereas I'm up, bed's made, shoes are on and I'm gone. Um, yeah, it's, the, it's, oh, it's why we become good businessmen as well is because of our standards, our high standards and um, standards within ourselves too. So we keep them to a good, um, good level. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I totally agree. I totally agree. I've, it's so funny. When I'm doing deals for clients, right, and we buy probably all over the country, so I've got time zone issues, I've got, um, yeah. you, know, um, you know, I've just got all sorts of issues, right, because we, we buy across the country and maybe issues is the wrong word, just complications, right, complicating factors. Um, and the amount of times I have agents, especially ones I haven't worked with before, they're like, oh, man, like settle down a bit, right? Like, you know, we'll, we'll get it to you when we get it to you, you know, a contract, for example, or, or yeah, like I'll call you back at, I don't know, 4 o'clock and it's like 4.45 and I call them and go, hey, mate, like, you know, you said you'd call me. Where are you at? And you're like, oh, yeah, sorry, I just got a bit busy. Oh, I was going to call you in the next couple of minutes anyway. I totally agree with you. Same thing, right? It's just our standards are always higher. We're always pushing for more. Yeah. And it's um, funny you say that about the time zones too because obviously in this um, game that we're in now, this Web3 game, we have time zone issues every day of the week. So we're talking to people in America, Europe, but they set meetings and, you know, I just had one before. It's 2 a.m. Um, will you be able to make that? Yep, no worries. There's just no questions asked. But, you know, if that was another person, you know, non-military related, they'd be like, nah, I'm setting that back. As much as it sucks, 2 a.m., I'll be there. Um, and I'll be there early too. So what's the old saying? If you're not five minutes early, you're ten minutes late. So, yeah, yeah. that's how I look at it. Um, Love it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I'd, I say it's our standards that set us apart at the moment. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I think um, if there's one thing I would definitely say to people that are looking at leaving or maybe have just left and you're trying to work out, how do you assimilate back into being a civilian? Um, and for a lot of people, like, you know, myself, 18 years, I wasn't really an adult when I left. So I had no concept of what an adult working life looked like as a civilian coming out the other side. If there's one thing you don't, I'd say don't dip or change, it's it's your work ethic, it's your timing, it's, it's your everything. Like, it's, if if that's, yeah, if that's the only thing, just keep that because that'll set you apart more than anything else. Yeah, and it is those 1% things that um, leave good impressions too. Um Hundred It's good discipline. Yeah, it's it's basic. Yeah. It's base. It's such a basic concept, but one that I just I don't know why people can't get it. I mean, I guess that's why um, we're here, aren't we? I'm um, having this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so then, man, like, was it? Um, so you were consulting, and then yeah. was it always property? Like, did you always have a thing for property? Yeah, I think I, I always had a thing for investing. I'd say. As the first point, I was I always had a thing for investing. Um, you know, I I, I uh, invest in the share market. I invest in a few different things. I then eventually did invest in property, but it was it was always investing. Um, and then once I sort of started going down more of the property route, and and once I started sort of learning a little bit more as well, that's where it really became the focus for me. Yeah, and have you have you touched on crypto at all? <laughs> uh, I, I have, but I, I'll be honest, it was all speculative. You know, it was a bit of like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll throw a thousand bucks here and there, you know, just just buy something and see what happens. Mate, nearly um, all of it is anyway, mate. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's like a thousand dollar hit on a pokey machine, you know. some yeah. Well, I'd say 90% of it is a thousand, it's a thousand dollar hit on, you know, where's the, uh, where's the gold or, you know, the yeah. Red Baron or something like that. 
big red. Yeah, big red. Yeah, one of those. Like, can't tell we haven't played many, mate. Yeah. We spend our money wisely here. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask, mate, how do you think your military service has helped you become um, successful in business? Just touching on that um, discipline and sort of, um, you know, work ethic. Uh, what else do you yeah. think's helped you um, in getting uh, successful in your business? I think it really comes down to those 1% things. If I'm being really honest, I don't think, like, I don't think I learned anything revolutionary. I think that no matter what career you had in the military, the ba- the skills that we all learn in our basic training equivalents, honestly, is what I try to bring into business every day, right? Discipline, um, timeliness, um, uh, work ethic, I don't know, attention to detail. That's probably another big one. Like the amount of times I see people just miss the easy, simple stuff. And I'm like, guys, just take an extra 30 seconds. And if you can do it a bit better, then like you, you'll just be set up so much better. I don't know. It's I, I genuinely find it is those really, really small things. Um, and yeah, I, I think... I don't think I've done anything special, put it that way, right? And like, we are not some unicorn business or anything like that anyway, but I don't really think that I've done anything special or we're doing anything special. I think it's just, we put our heads down, we just get the work done, whether it's a 2am meeting, like what you were saying before, or whether it's an early start, you know, like I think three weeks ago, I was having to take flights, 6am takeoff. I'll go on, fuck, I booked it myself. I was like, fuck, I should have booked it later. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that always get happens. You get to the airport, you're like, what yeah. am I doing? Why don't I just book it for yeah. 8 o'clock like a normal human? Yeah. Would I? yeah. Literally. And I'm, the, and I'm the boss, right? Like I, I had yeah. nobody over me saying you had to get that flight and I just did it. And it's, yeah, I don't know. That's, I, I, don't, I, don't think I, I don't have a magic pill, you know, and, and I don't want people to think that there is a magic pill. And I, and I guess that's something that I see on the investing side and what I do in the business is people come and they're like, Oh, what's a good property? Where, well, like, what's the best property? What do I do? And I say to them, there's no magic pill, right? It's a lot of it is boring. A lot of it is um, the success that you get. Nobody sees, nobody sees the hard work that went on behind it. No one sees the 2am meetings, the 6am flights, the, you know, the stressed because the bank accounts dipped a bit low. They just see the end result of it. Um, but it's the, it's just the, the, I think we talk about in the, in, in the book actually, it's the aggregation of marginal gains. It's the get 1% better every day and, you know, you'll do all right. Yeah, and then because you have, like, with your 10 steps in your book, A Military Guide to Property yeah. Investing, um, it, you have a good breakdown of using that military mindset. Um, yeah. So do, do you want to touch on that? Yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, Look, and I think a lot of people who pick up the book will, will probably almost maybe have a bit of a laugh at some of the of the chapter titles because how often did we have like defense values, army values, different things sort of almost rammed down our throats to an extent and we sort of sit there sometimes and go like, oh, fuck, all right, I get it, mandatory training, all right? You know, Navy values are these, army values are these. But I thought it was a really good way to think about property because as much as we sometimes laugh about it and and as much as sometimes, you know, when we're getting a bone in, it was the thing that was used, you know, where was your honesty? Where was your integrity? Things like that. I think that they were genuinely really good things to take into business, civilian life, or in this case, property investing. Um, And I guess that sort of leads me into the book, which is that, you know, we've got 10 steps that we think is, you know, how to really successfully invest in property. And all of them are based on, defense principles or I guess defense practices, you know? So for example, teamwork, you know, that's, that's one of the big ones. And in the property context, it's, 
you need a good you need a good team around you. You know, a good a good accountant, a good solicitor, a good buyer's agent, a good um, mortgage broker. You know, and there's other people as well. But without that teamwork, same as when you're still in uniform, you'll be really hard to it'll be really hard to achieve success. Um, you know, what's that saying? Um, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah, that yeah. sort of mindset. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, these the military values. What, uh, they're written for a reason and they work. Yeah. Know? And it's just a lot of the time it's really simple, but it's overlooked by a lot of people. Mm, 100%. 100%. Like I think my two, my two favourite chapters in the books are steps five and six, which is excellence and mission analysis. And I think that they're, they're the two, they're two things that are so key to, to being in uniform, right? And it's those small things like be brilliant at the basics. I think that's my favourite saying out of, that I got out of the military. I don't know if you guys heard that over your time. But oh, it's probably a thousand times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least, probably a thousand times a week. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I think that's the thing, right? And I guess that's like that 1% discussion we're having, right? But if you can be brilliant at the basics, it, it, you, you build on that. But if you can't even do the basics, how are you going to do anything advanced? Um, so I think that, you know, it's just all those things. It's bringing in just all those little nuances, all those little, those little skills. It doesn't matter if you're a private or whether you are a, um, you know, a Navy captain, we've all learned the same stuff. And all those things, whether it's about property, which is obviously the context of the book, or whether it's business, or whether it's just a transition, whether you go be uh, a chippy, a, a plumber, what it, like whatever the job is, it, I think all those things are just so applicable to everything that we do day to day. Yeah. Yeah, great. The, the big thing about teamwork, um, and I relate to this quite a bit, um, you know, People want to do things by themselves because they believe they're going to make more money. We see it all the time in this industry. It's the same with what you just said then. Um, they believe they're going to make more money by themselves. So why should I be paying a, um, a mortgage broker? Why should I be getting a buyer's agent? Well, because you're going to get a better result. It's simple. The better the team, the bigger the result. And um, people don't care what happens um, the hard work, they don't care. They only care about the big results at the end. And like you said, they, you know, they don't. Um, value teamwork, some of them. Um, you need a better team. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think definitely something I've realized as a business owner is scale is a really uh, interesting thing that you don't really understand until you start playing around with some bigger numbers. Like, And I guess going to what you're saying about money, like if you went up to somebody and said like, oh, um, you could make $40,000 doing, I don't know, X, Y, whatever it is, you make $40,000. Or... Um, you can make you could make a hundred thousand dollars, but you're gonna have to split it amongst the team, right? And maybe get fifty percent, right? A lot of people probably wouldn't probe further to sort of understand like how much they might make out of the hundred thousand. They'd just probably go, "Oh, wait, I got to split it. I probably I'd rather just do the forty thousand, do it myself." But if you can make fifty percent of that hundred or sixty percent by doing it together, you might have a few headaches, you know, working with people, and you know, you might think you can do it better than everyone else. But by working as a team, you get a much better result. And I think people really struggle to sort of conceptualize that at times. Yeah, that's like even um, even uh, using a buyer's agent. There's so much. I think um, people might not quite understand what a buyer's agent does. Um, yeah, but I've used them, and there's so much value um, in in getting that uh, professional to do all the hard lifting for you. And yeah, you know, in in this country, if you do use one, you make your money back the next day, pretty much. Um, but do you want to touch on a bit more on what a buyer's agent actually does? And yeah, because it's all it is like it's a strategic game, and um, I think having someone with with your 
background, um, it's, it's a perfect fit. Yeah, definitely. So a buyer's agent, put it, putting it really simply, a real estate agent represents the seller or the vendor of a property and a buyer's agent represents the buyer of a property. Um, the big things are that, because uh, there, there is a bit of misinformation out there, I will say. I mean, you see a lot of, for example, people um, flogging house and land packages and sometimes they might try and call themselves a buyer's agent. But to me, a buyer's agent realistically is representing the vendor, the, sorry, the, the purchaser or buyer's interest. And that usually means that the buyer is actually paying them, right? Um, sometimes you get these groups uh, or people that, you know, sell. And house land package is the easy one because the way that they make money is off a developer. And then often they'll get people in, particularly ex-military, and go, oh, we'll sort it all for you. Um, and there's no sort of fee paid. And they probably do look after your interest, you know, nine times out of ten. But because... You know, realistically, it comes down to if you're not paying somebody, but somebody else is, whose interest do you think are going to look after when push comes to shove? You know, where's that conflict lying? You know, so um, for me as a buyer's agent, I get paid by the client. Um, and it means that my interests are 100% aligned with the clients uh, and there's no conflicts there whatsoever. And, and I think that's probably something if, you know, if you are out there listening and thinking about using a buyer's agent, make sure you ask how the commissions or, or, or money is getting transferred and, and changing hands because that's important. But um, for me, we, we focus on investment. So some buyers agents might help people buy their own home. Some people might help people invest. Some people might, you know, sort of dabble in the middle. For us, we focus solely on investment and we go around the country. So we just follow the data, the research, the analysis to find people the best location, agnostic of where it is, you know, and that's why our interest is so aligned with our client being the purchaser. Yeah. And then what's your sort of... Um how do you do you do uh, blue chip stuff or do you look at things that yeah. will give you a passive income or um well, we sort of do across the board right and we really align it with the client more than anything because everyone's sort of at a different stage um but generally speaking we sort of have a bit of a, a formula i guess for building out the portfolio and at the start which is you know where a lot of people we see are at because it is hard to build those big portfolios um at the start it's about trying to balance cash flow and growth you know, if you go down to Bondi, you buy a nice pad right on the beach, you know, if you could afford it firstly. Who, who can afford that? Can I get a job with them? Uniform. Whoever's listening to that, yeah. can, you got any jobs going? Um, but, you know, for those guys, they won't be getting like a 1% yield. You know, they're going to be they're gonna be forking out, you know, probably tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in mortgage repayments or, or sorry, in expenses on top of what they get re- recoup in rent. So really highly negatively geared, very difficult to scale. Other end of it is, you know, in the middle of nowhere, really high cash flow. Maybe think of, say, a mining town or something like that, but no growth. Cash flow is good, but it doesn't really help you scale with your equity um, into future properties. So we try to find that balance. You know, we don't want to sacrifice too much growth. We don't want to sacrifice too much cash flow. And, and building out properties where we can sort of balance both sets people up to build those large portfolios. That's where we really focus for most of our clients. And then once they're through that foundational building stage, that's where we then look at other stuff like, you know, maybe it's commercial, maybe it's blue chip stuff, maybe it's development stuff. But just once their portfolio is quite secure and quite, um, you know, robust and, and um, able to weather a storm if, say, something happened. So every military um, personnel, uh, male or female, should be coming to you in their first year instead of pissing <laughs> it all up the wall. You know, you got four years at minimum to build a, or start a portfolio because you're on a decent wage. It's guaranteed wage as well. So... I mean, if you're hitting a buyer's agent in your first year, I wish I'd have done that. Yes. Um, yeah. oh, <clears throat> the amount of beer I bought, of- uh, you know, I could have bought 10 houses. <laughs> um, but you you would suggest that, you know, 
um, going and see a buying a buyer's agent in your first year of service, and then building, you know, uh, a portfolio, portfolio geez, um, over that four years. Um, that would be a smart move, I would say, and it would pe- put people into better shape when they um, discharge as well. They might be a little Absolutely. bit more happy. They're like, oh, you know, the military might have um, cooked my knees and my back, but you know, at least I got two houses out of this. Yeah, don't spend all yeah, your deployment yeah. money on a HSV. Yeah, no Maloos and uh, <laughs> Rangers and stuff, yeah. I was going to say the big Raptor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> classic, yeah. It's funny you say that because our, um, our co-founder here has a black Raptor, um, pretty ironic actually. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Different stage of life though than the 19-year-old with their uh, three times the salary done out for a big big Raptor or something. Oh, but, ours um, was yeah. the HSV, like the classic Maloo ute. It was like yeah. a Holden... Um, you know, show yard in there. It was ridiculous. Yeah. It was just Malou after Malou after Malou. It was pretty yeah. cool to see, but but yeah, great, uh, great waste of money. Um, yeah, absolutely. But no, look, I think I think more if if there's one thing I'd probably say, like whether it's shares, crypto, property, you know, whatever it is, time in the market is more important than anything else. So the earlier you start, the more time you have for success. Or if something goes wrong, to then you know fix that fix that failure and then and then move on to the success. Um, but just have the conversations, right? Like talk to a buyer's agent, talk to people that work in crypto, talk to people who work in the share market, work, you know, read, like get online. I mean, you can get there's so much information out there now. There's huge, you know, you watch a couple of YouTube videos, get a bit of knowledge and um, that'll be the biggest thing you can do, right? Because like I have clients who come and they don't know anything and that's very easy for me, right? Because I want them to succeed and I will guide them and I'll, and I'll grab their hand and I'll take them down the pathway. But when, when people come to me and they do have a bit of knowledge, it means we have some really good conversations as well. And, and they can learn even more out of it because they, they know the questions to ask, things like that. Ultimately, they get the same paper result, which is great property, things like that. But the intangible stuff around the knowledge that people get when they do start to invest in themselves a little bit more um, often can actually be way more worthwhile than the stuff we might do with them in terms of purchasing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's really key. Like I... Uh... Not long, well, it's going to settle next week, hopefully, um, my first yeah. investment property. And, um, Congrats. I, thank you. Um, but, yeah, I would have spent 200 hours listening to podcasts on YouTube, reading, um, like I've heard you a lot, Lachlan. Um, yeah. And oh, um, you. I, you just can't, you can't know everything. Um, and I still use a buyer's agent. Um and like because I still didn't think I still thought it was extremely worth it, um, and it, yeah, it just goes to show what, whatever you're dabbling in, just make sure you spend plenty of time just trying to understand what you're actually doing. It's not hard either. You get you've got every resource at your fingertips now, so you can literally get on your mm. iPhone 13. Probably should have bought more houses instead of buying that too. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, you get on that and. You know, a buyer's agent provides you knowledge right across the country. I, there's no way in hell I'm going to sit there and look through realestate.com and then do the math on absolutely every house across the country. That's just ridiculous. Um, you know, that's why you pay the professionals to do it because they can do it a lot more streamlined for you. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, like, the real, the real the, there's a million and way, one ways that we give value to a, to a client, right? But the one that I always come back to as, like, if there was, if there was only one thing I could say to try and, you know, punch across the line where value lies, because we do this day in, day out, 
knowing the market so well, you know, often knowing the agents because we've done deals with them before and things like that, they know that we're a solid, we're a solid purchaser, things like that. When we can go in and negotiate like maybe 15, 20, 30K straight away off the property and that, you know, that could be one, two, three, four, five times our service fee just saved in negotiating alone, let alone all the time, all the hours, all the analysis, all the post-purchase stuff in terms of managing the settlement, it's all it's all been saved three four times over in the in the front end on the negotiate a lot. Yeah, yeah. So the values you've already provided the value straight off the bat. Yeah, exactly right. And and you also help with strategy too, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And I guess that goes to the, your question before when you said whether we do blue chip or other stuff. Yeah. And I said, oh, it really comes down to the client's sort of position, what they want to achieve, things like that. That's where our strategy piece comes into it to um, sit down hear about where they're at, hear about where they want to be and try to work out the best way to get them there. Yeah, because I'm sure um, you'd look at things differently if someone was 20 years old opposed to 40 mm. or 50 years old. Absolutely, absolutely. And again, it, it comes down to big things are always time, risk, uh, capacity. They're probably the big three um, because there's, there's a lot of ways to make a million dollars, but if you've only got a day to make a million dollars, and suddenly there's not many ways you can do it. But if you've got 10 years to make a million dollars, then, you know, a lot less risky, a lot more methods. So, yeah, they're the big three that I sort of try to talk to people about. Specky mining stocks, eh? Hey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love a good specky mining stock. <laughs> so from here, what would your plans be moving forward um, with your business and the business success? Are you looking at scaling up as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've already grown our team out. We've sort of... Um, uh, hired a bunch more people. We're, you know, growing our, our um, office footprint. We're going to hire even more people. So that side of the business is, is really going well. Um, we're, you know, looking at other stuff as well. You know, we're looking at, at a couple of different tech ideas as well to sort of really try to help shake up the, the property landscape. But they're, they're quite early on, so there's not, there's not much to tell about them just yet. Um, but yeah, for us, it's just all about continuing to help grow. Um, you know, one of my roles is I sit on the board of PIPA, which is Property Investment Professionals of Australia, um, and that's sort of like the, the peak industry body, I guess, for people who work as a property professional as, uh, on the investment side. And um, you know, I'm really doing some good work with them and trying to help them um, grow awareness and also a bit of regulation because I think property is uh, it's it can be a bit of a cowboy's game if you get the wrong person in your corner. Um, so, yeah, I guess I guess for us it's just about um, helping to grow awareness, grow the education side, um, help more people, um, you know, help more vets. You know, I love having I love having or, or currently serving people. Um, yeah, they're probably the big things we're focusing on at the moment. Yeah, sweet. And you're also teaching what? Um, <laughs> yeah. So you're at uh, University of New South Wales at the business school. That's a pretty yeah. prestigious school, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's like second or third in the country and I think it's top 30 or so in the world business. Um, so yeah, for me, I, I remember what it was like when I was going through university. Um, and, and I'm sure, you know, it, it's, um, my lens is through university, but I, you know, it's the same when you were on an IET or whether you were on you know anything, if you couldn't identify with the people teaching you, it can be really hard to sort of learn and, and really absorb the knowledge and, and, and um, grow i guess and i want to i i like to be a solution not just another person whinging about the problem um so i thought you know what 
why don't I just put my hat in the ring and uh, see if I could go over there and do a bit of teaching and, um, you know, being sort of in my, in my mid to late thir- uh, 30s, 20s. Um, uh, for me, it's pretty easy, to, a lot easier to identify with an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old than it is somebody who's 50 or 60, hasn't worked in industry for years, just been an academic their whole life and, you know, you've got these people sitting there on Instagram and, and the person teaching doesn't even know, you know, they've still got an iPhone 4, you know. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, they're not up with I it. Wanted to do it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They're not. They're not adapting. They're just still, um, you know, they're just stuck in their academic way without adaption. Um, people won't listen. Yeah. Like I, no. I wouldn't no. sit there and listen to a dude that had an iPhone four and teach me about tech or business <laughs> in two thousand and twenty two. Like, mate, you're nah. you're twenty years behind the eight ball, mate. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. It's uh, I got my teaching evaluations back from from the last term and. And all and 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 funnily enough, uh, a lot of the comments were just about the engagement and about being able to bring contemporary um, examples into whatever material it was that was being taught, and um, that was what I wanted to do. So for me, I saw that as a big success. But um, I guess for the students, I just remember what it was like when you learn the things, and they're going to forget, you know, two thirds of it. And I know that, but but I remember when I was learning the stuff that, that I've learned that there was always just these little. You know, you, you always remember a particular teacher or you always remember a particular subject or a particular concept because of something that really resonated with you. And I just wanted to try and bring that in, you know, try and bring things so that they would just, you know, even if they hold 20% more information than the people in the same subject but with a different teacher. Did you do that through engagement, like trying to get them engaged more? Um, yeah. So I feel as though I learn a lot better when I'm engaging um, you know, not just yeah. sitting there and taking notes and whatnot, but actually being engaged by the um, person who's teaching the subject. Yeah, and yeah, you, absolutely. I mean, sorry, mate, sorry. go on. No, that's all right. I was just going to say, if you're seeing a bloke who's out there killing it in the real world and then is coming in uh, and teaching you, you're going to sit up and listen um, because obviously you think this guy sort of knows what he's talking about. I don't know about killing it, but <laughs> but uh, I mean, I'll take it. Um, yeah, but, it's, I'll take yeah, it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, so, mate, you got to take them where you can get them, mate, because they don't come yeah. around that often. A compliment. The small wins, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. There's that little one uh, percent for the day. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, love it. Um, but no, I think yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You know, when you got people sort of similar age, maybe something similar that they want to do. Like, I'm sure there's somebody that's probably sitting in one of my classes that. Um, thought I want to start a business one day obviously I'll start a business um you know I think you're right you know it's just being able to identify right you, you know you try to um wear I guess I try to be a bit of a chameleon right try and wear as many different skins and colors as I could so that everyone could try and find something about the way that I approached it um whether it was engagement or you know a background or an idea or something so that they could identify with something I did so that they would help it would help them to go oh I want to try and listen you know or I want to try and learn yeah nice and then just um, getting back onto the property thing, because I could talk to you for hours about, about <laughs> it, but I'm sure a few of the listeners who um, might have a mortgage or are looking at getting one um, and then seeing the craziness over the last two years and now with the uh, rates coming up again, in the media it all seems a bit doomy and gloomy. Um, yeah. What's your perspective on what's going on? The sun will still rise tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I, I I did another podcast with a property specific platform um, a week or two ago, and we were talking about exactly this. Um, and, and I'll say what I said there, which was that 
sentiment is the biggest problem. Um, and media is the worst culprit for this because when times are good, all they do is write positive headlines and everyone thinks times are great and they're going to last forever. And then when it gets to, you know, I guess kind of what we're getting to now, which is not that there's anything particularly wrong, but when there's just a bit of a change in the market and we're not having a once in a probably 40 or 50 year cycle occurring, suddenly everything is going to shit and the world's going to end. And it's not right. Um, I think, I did the maths for that podcast. I think what we worked out was if you had a $500,000 mortgage, the interest rate rise that happened, that uh, point was a 0.25% um, yep. that, that happened. Um, it was an extra like 100 bucks a week or 200 bucks a week. I can't remember the exact numbers, but right, really small scale. And when rents are going up 10, 15, 20% as well, if you already own a property, it is well and truly offsetting whatever it is that's sort of going on around um, the mortgage rates, you know? So take, my, my advice to everyone is just take a bit of a breath. When you actually run the numbers, you realize that everything is okay, right? And all you've got to do is just make sure you don't get your, yourself into a bit of a spiral thinking that something's going wrong. Um, and realistically, there's going to be some great deals and we're starting to see them, but there are going to be more uh, great deals occurring because people are going to shit the bed and they're going to run scared. And it's, yeah, it's going to just be, uh, it's going to be a great opportunity for people who want to take advantage. And the rate's not even scary at the moment. So we saw no. record low rates. I think we locked ours in at something stupid, like 2.1% for five yeah. years. We are never going to see that again. And people, you know, they're starting to cry, oh, you know, 0.25, we're going to go broke. But 0.25 on top of on top of 2.1 and you're going broke, mate, you are over leveraged, you idiot. Like, yeah, absolutely. How can, how can that go wrong at 0.235? Like, yeah. I, I don't get it, but I guess people are leveraged to the hills at the moment. So, but but and to be fair as well, people either don't know or don't understand or maybe just don't care. But when you go to the bank and you get a mortgage, the banks had um, much higher assessment rates. Even in these really low interest rate periods, they had much higher assessment rates um, than what people are paying. Um, and I can't remember uh, what it was. I think it was. Um, it was either your rate plus three percent if your if your rate was above a certain number, or if not, then it brought it up and then it added, I think, a two and a half percent buffer, something like that. Um, uh, but I just sort of flicked around with it. But anyway, the point the point is is that most people have probably being assessed for five and a half, six, six and a half, seven percent type repayments, and they're nowhere near that. And people have to just understand that you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? If you're going to invest. Um, Maybe it means you have to forego one Uber Eats meal a week when, you know, it starts to go up a little bit. But your lifestyle doesn't really change because you've got to go to Woolies and buy an extra steak as opposed to getting a couple of burgers delivered, you know. Yep. Yeah, that's right. And it, you're, you're right in saying that because I know my broker said to me, um, he's like, yeah, they, they're going to be assessing you on a lot, on a, like a normal, on a normal rate opposed to what, what, what we've um, been lucky enough to have. Lucky the, years. lucky the banks don't look at our Uber Eats receipts or else we'd be stuffed. I mean, they'd never give me a loan oh, based do. on my Uber Eats receipts. Jeez. No, Man, you could, days, you could afford that house in Bondi if you stopped eating Uber <laughs> Eats. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's funny. Um, perspective, isn't it? Well, and that's it, right? And, and I think it's so hard when you jump on Facebook or you get the Apple News alert on your phone or whatever and – Property for the last two years has just been a positive story and now it's a negative story. But point is, it's still a story in some respect. It, 
you know, if you go back, I don't know, three, maybe four years ago where things were just pretty normal, you know, some markets were up, some were flat, some were a little bit down, property was barely making entries, you know, like it was maybe like once a week, twice a week you see something. But now it's like every day, multiple headlines a day. It's hard to sort of cut through that noise and not get like let whatever the sort of um, uh, sentiment or feeling behind those stories is creep into your into your headspace. That's right. And it comes down to, again, I think, um, you know, if, you, if you're a bit educated mm. when you get into the space mm. and you can see these headlines and sort of see straight through them. Yeah. Well, this yeah, is the, you know, when things start going south and the bargains start popping up, this is what makes people successful. They're like, yep, they've got the money ready to rock and roll to snap up these bargains and then they reap the rewards in five to ten years when it, you know, this cycle comes back on itself. They get growth and the rent too, so... You know, a bit 100%. of education goes a long way here. You just need to squirrel that money away and get ready for these bargains. That's that's okay. how the rich get richer and, you know, successful get more successful is they yeah. um, that fear to greed index, isn't it? You know, when shit starts going south, they got, they got money ready to roll. Mm. And, look, my hot tip for everyone is that there's a massive, massive, massive undersupply of properties all around the country, right? I think I did a, I did a news piece uh, last week as well, actually, and it was um, – around the fact that come, by, by 2030, nationally, we're going to be deficient by about 130,000 properties by 2030 on where we should be. Um, because of that, simple economics, supply and demand, um, I don't know when, you know, if, if prices start to drop out a little bit now, you know, I have every confidence it won't be very much, but it's not going to take long for that to rebound again because, Simple economics, right? There is such a lack of supply, but the demand is there, right? The demand is so high, there is there is no reason to, that there that there wouldn't be continual increases. Um, that, that's right. I know. I know where I live. Um, there's a bit of a rental crisis going on, and and this mm-hmm. like the that's the scary thing is when you see people living out of their cars because they can't get a pr- property. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a big problem. We. We actually had a property that we bought for a client and we bought it with vacant possession. So there was tenants, but we said, oh, no, we don't want to carry them over because, to be honest, they were they were really not great tenants. Um, and they just refused to leave the property because they couldn't get another property to rent. So we it went on for like probably four months and it was meant to be a two-month settlement. Actually, I think it went on for almost five months and it was a two-month settlement. Um, it was over the Christmas period. Um and we ended up having to rescind or cancel the contract of sale because they just refused to leave and we weren't going to take them on because we knew that they were pretty average tenants. Um, and uh, they just flat out refused to leave. We, for, for a number of reasons, we didn't have much legal recourse to get them out um, just for some complicating factors. Um, so we said, all right, we're just going to, we're going to cut bait and, and, and go somewhere else because, because of that. But I mean, they're obviously going to feel the repercussions with blacklistings and tenant databases and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. But, you know, I, I could still empathise to a degree with them that, um, you know, they, they did turn down some good properties and there were other options. But, and, you know, they did choose to sort of put their head in the sand a little bit. But I could still empathise a touch that there is this crisis and that was, that was something that we had as a real-life example with client at the start of the year. So a good time to be building, oh, if you can get the supplies, I guess. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a hard one as well, though, because um, you know, for a lot of the build stuff, it's on the fringes. Um, you know, it's it's not necessarily in the best spots, but 
Um, and and building materials are obviously so high, like you were saying, cost and um, difficulty to to find. But um, I guess I, I've always been an established suburb type person rather than a, a, a house and land or a new build type thing. But you know, some people do it, and some people are successful. Um, but you know, for us, we we sort of don't do that. Yeah, no, and that that makes sense. Like, um, yeah. For investment, anyway, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna build a house to live in, you know, I think that that's that's great. You know, like fill your boots, build your dream home, wherever it is, that's great. But um, yeah, I guess my personal ethos is just sort of different. But um, you know, yeah, my, people might get um, excited about seeing things, you know, like your depreciation schedules on the new yeah. house and all that. And um, but yeah, that's why people come to someone like you, and you can actually sit them down and and explain why yeah. you're doing what you're doing. My partner's dad still swears by building. No matter how many times I talk to him, and he's he's got plenty of properties under his belt. But uh, you know, he just he just says no. Nah, it's what I do, and I like it. Yeah, that's it's it's. I guess it's that difference. Yeah, if it's not broken, I guess too. Don't. There's no need to fix it. Um, yeah. All right, mate. Well, we might wrap things up. Um, do you want to tell us where we can find you, your socials, website, where we can buy your book? Yeah, well, I mean, thanks everyone for tuning in. Firstly, uh, and and thanks guys for having me on. I no, appreciate it for coming on, mate. It was um, insightful, at the very least. Oh. So I took a lot out of that as well. Actually, I need to go back and have a that. good, hard, long <laughs> look at my portfolio. Like maybe I should pull some money out of these risky mining stocks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate, I mean, we all need a specky, don't we? <laughs> it'll pay. It'll it'll pay. It'll pay. Just let yeah. it go down ninety percent, and I'll get it out. I'll buy high. Yeah. Buy, Buy high, sell low. Eh? That's the key, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I'll figure but, it out um, eventually. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people can find us all over social media. So uh, Atlas Property Group on Facebook and Atlas Property Group on uh, Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, we post lots of stuff. Um, otherwise, you can jump on our website, which is just atlaspropertygroup.com.au. Um, you can buy a book from there. You can buy the book in Dimix, uh, Amazon, you know, all, all those big major bookstores as well. Um, and then, you know, if you I – think, I think we might have a – um, a little guide um, on our website as well. So you can sign up to our, our mailing list and, you know, we send out a couple of emails once or twice a week as well where we put out, you know, lots of educational content and stuff um, like that. Um, yeah, awesome. And we'll we'll put your website and um, uh, your Instagram when we start. Yeah, um, when we get it, when we get it going. And I think it needs to be said as well, um, especially for all the military boys and all the AJs that are listening here, um, you don't have to be in the same city as a buyer's agent. You can do it remotely. You don't have to go into his office. You can get him over the phone, get him via email, and he'll do all the work for you remotely. Um, I think that's a good key point. Yeah, appreciate that. Yeah, we, we've literally got clients in Abu Dhabi. We've got clients in the Philippines. We've got clients all across the country. Most of the time people want to jump on Zoom anyway. So, yeah, appreciate that because it is a good point. It doesn't matter where you are doesn't matter whether you're, you know, Tiwi Islands off Darwin or whether you're in Sydney, but, um, you know, you just want to jump on Zoom, which is, you know, what we do for a lot of people anyway, we can help wherever you are. Yeah, easy, mate. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Lachlan. Uh, we'll let you get back to your day, mate, Monday morning. Go get at it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, mate. 
the War Dogs NFT mission and team, and all related podcast episodes and content are provided for general information purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, or other professional advice. Visitors should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional.